1: Hey guys! Thank you so much for joining the uh, premiere episode of the Borgo Pass Horror Podcast. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. My name is Scott Kelly
0: from Boston. I'm Jim Towns. I'm a writer and filmmaker in Los Angeles. I'm originally from Pittsburgh. We're uh, we're here to talk about our first movie, which is it would be 1931's Dracula, of course, the Universal uh,
1: classic. And it was very um, you know interesting how Jim and I got together. We were strangers up until about well, two or three weeks ago, and mm-hmm. You know, just had um, kind of both common ideas and both things that we'd like to do with, you know, audio, visual, video, of course, um, long-time lovers of podcasts, and more importantly, horror movies. So just got chatting online, and I'd say within a day or two, we had uh, ideas for this this podcast. Like so, too many uh, ideas,
0: almost. Too, way, so, too many,
1: <laughs> right? way too many ideas. And yeah, this hopefully this is going to be a long-term project, because I think we have a lot of things we want to do. But yeah, it was really exciting, super organic, the way this came about. You know, just two people again, total strangers, but just mutual love for the genre, the horror genre, the you know classic movie genre. Thank you so much again for uh, for reaching out, Jim, and so excited to be doing this. No, me too. Let's let's uh, let's get into it. Very good. All right, so 1931's Dragon. If you're listening to this podcast, the assumption is you probably have a pretty good idea of the film. So. Of course, starring the one and only Bella Lugosi as Count Dracula, and Helen Chandler as Mina Stewart. I should say Seward. That's tripping yeah. me up here. Yeah, I wanted mm-hmm. to have that T in there, but it's actually Seward. Um, David Manners as Jonathan Hawker, Francis Dade as Lucy Westenra. Herbert Bunston as Dr. John Seward. Not Steward, Seward. Of course, the amazing Edward Van Sloan, who we'll be talking about probably a couple more times in this podcast. Probably. As... Um, <laughs> as professor abraham van helsing and of course i mean we have to consider him a, a co-star right underneath Paul Lugosi is uh, dwight fry as renfield just uh, yes. incredible incredible iconic performance by uh, by
0: Dwight Fry. The the first time I watched Dracula was I was I was obsessed with these monsters as a kid. It was a little bit before you and I were both around the same age. It was a little before home video hit the market. I was about third fourth grade I think when that happened. So this is a few years before that. I was I, I would read these books from my library about all these classic monster movies, but I wasn't able to watch them. There was a there was a Saturday night. It was a summer night uh, and late night. I found out they were going to show Dracula on TV at Pittsburgh, where I was from. And uh, I begged my mom, like, can I stay up? Can I stay up? I know it's really late because I'm like eight o'clock or something. It was showing at midnight. I was like, I really want to watch it. And she's like, okay, you know, sat up and it came on. And I think I made it probably almost through the Transylvania part of it, you know, the first 20 minutes and then totally just fell asleep and 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 that was it. But I remember the late night it being dark and watching that. And that's the first time I I experienced Dracula. So it was probably the first universal film I ever saw. And uh with a possible exception of Abenakov's home meet Frankenstein, which we'll get into later. And then I didn't see it until, you know, a home video came out and i watched I was able to rent it. And since then I've I've owned it on VHS and DVD and Blu-ray. And you know, if there if there's a format it was on, I probably had it. So this I don't know if it's my favorite universal film, just like the dearest to my heart, but it's it's, it's the prototype for me. And that's why I think it was good that we started the podcast with this one. And it, it's the, it's the film that proved you could do a horror talkie and it could be a, a smashing success. And I don't think without Dracula. You have any of the other 75-odd universal horror films in the cycle between the 1930s and the 1950s. I I think this is the one that set the ball rolling. I think that's so important as
1: we sit here in the year 2020, especially for younger viewers who are just accustomed to a certain type of filmmaking, that we really do have to remember this was very early moving pictures. With sound, and it's it's clear to see that you know these guys are really learning a craft. The filmmakers, the actors, you know, especially in Dracula, where they have these standalone sets. When they get especially to the to the sanitarium, um, you could see Lugosi and and Van Sloan how you know three, four, five short years ago were on a
0: stage, you know, reenacting the story. It's I mean, sound sound had only been really a thing the jazz singers, 1927. So you're thinking this this is made in 30, 31, it shows, you know, I, I think, I think Dracula shows this, this evolution uh, and, and sort of the growing pains of, of film going from going from silent to, to, to sound. Everything had to change. They had to change the way they would film based on where the microphones would have to be. And you'd always see these big planter like flower arrangements in the middle of the frame in a lot of these films because that's where they would have to put the mics. They're they're figuring it out. And I, I think, and Browning, Todd Browning, the director obviously was a silent film director. And I do think there's points in this movie where you can see him struggling to adapt himself to, to, to this new science. Of filming, and then also the actors. I think you know some of them are stage actors. Obviously, Lugosi and Fry, and I think Sloan to some degree had had done Dracula as a play on Broadway, and you can see them and David Manners almost adapting from, for their part, like a, a stage performance style into a film performance style. And the the paint wasn't all altogether dry at that point. I, you can definitely see the brush strokes. That's part of the beauty. Just yeah. kind of the. I
1: don't want to say the awkwardness, but it it really truly is people learning a craft across the board. People that don't take a step back. I mean, I think it's easy to come in with a kind of a closed or narrow mind and get Dracula and say, well, it's, it's it's, you know, it's so boring. It's so static with some of the the scenes. And like you said, these, (laughs) these planters, I'm sure if you look hard enough, you can see the microphones and the cabling. But I mean, it's it's just such a, it's just such a beautiful reason why I I love this film. It's just because of that awkwardness. And it's just, like you said, this is the template for the films to come. And you can see, you know, especially when you get into like Bride of Frankenstein, just mm-hmm. four, five, six, seven years after this, how much
0: things had had evolved with- Oh, right. You know, film with, in- with scoring alone. I mean, scoring. the Franz Wachsman score running through Bride of Frankenstein was revolutionary. Oh you, you my You look gosh. at Dracula, and without, except with the exception of the, you know, the Tchaikovsky music at the beginning, and then that brief interlude of Wagner when they're in the theater, when Dracula first meets Mina and, and Harker, there's no music in the film. And we're so used to, to score throughout a film that helps smooth out the crack and carry us through the the drama of the story. This has none of that, which is ironic because silent films had music all throughout
1: the the score. And you know, we can get right into it. I mean, I remember as a you know a kid, just to I'll take a step back, and I think my introduction to this film was very similar to yours, Jim. Where around my um, the channels around when I was a kid, they had a show called Creature Double Feature, and I mean, Dracula was constantly on. And of course, the Halloween costumes and you know the right. marketing around Halloween. Even if you've never seen the movie. It was just that iconic presence. Everyone knew Dracula, and it was the L- Lugosi. And right, right. Even without seeing the movie, I knew very well years before actually <laughs> sitting down and watching Dracula for the first time exactly who this character is. So it just it, back to that, just like the iconic status of, it, and I'm sure, it I made think it, yeah, you're going into pop culture, yeah, absolutely. And I think you'll probably go into this later on. You know, maybe with some of the, the conflicts between Universal and, and the cut in the um, Lugosi family, Jim. But again, right from the get go, you just knew, just knew who Dracula was. So going right into this, into the score, like you'd mentioned, very little audio, but of course the film opens up with Swan Lake, you know, Opus 20. And as a kid, not knowing anything about Swan Lake- I was just always mesmerized. It is such a great piece for this It is. It is. This, it's this haunting
0: and, and gorgeous, and it's just the right length. You know, it it's, it's an amazing little
1: bit. And they got, I mean, we can kid about it, but they got a little <laughs> a little bit lazy reusing this uh, Swan Lake. They it's, recycled the, it the, for the mummy. It in the public domain, so these are for Mummy Room Morgue. But mm-hmm. again, I remember as a kid just hearing this piece, and again, just so haunting, and such a great way to open up
0: into just that, that opening scene, and we can kind of get into the film. If- for me, it's like, it's like, it's like the the 20th Century Fox fanfare as a kid, you know, as a kid of our age, we we knew the 20th Century Fox fanfare bled into Star Wars. Absolutely. the, the next thing you're gonna say was the Lucasfilm Limited, <laughs> you know, a long time ago. Um and and so now I, I could never even hear that without anticipating what was the awesomeness was about to come. And to me, that's that's what that's what that piece of swan like. If I ever hear it out of context, I'm still expecting to hear, you know, expecting that that bat logo to come up and and the titles. So,
1: yeah, going to the opening scene, so I think, you know, that that stagecoach ride into mm. the village, I think such an important, you know, scene for you and I specifically, Jim, because dot, 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 first time they actually used the term Bogo Pass. Bogo Pass, that's right. And, and was, I was, Lin, I was Lin, Lin, listening Lin, for Lin. it. I said, I want to win. Obviously, Hawkins back to the novel, but there is no Bogo Pass in Hungary. Uh, this was made up, made up name for the book and ultimately the film. So I was kind of waiting around. And right off the bat, maybe the fourth or fifth <laughs> word in the film was, you know, discussing the Borgo Pass. So I thought that was pretty neat. Yeah.
0: Carla, Carla Lemley, right? It's, it's, it's Carl Lemley's daughter, daughter. Is, is, is reading the, <clears throat> whatever it is, the, the travel guide or, or what have you as they, as they ride through this. If you really look at reference or, or pictures of the Carpathian Mountains, they're they're actually incredibly beautiful. it looks it looks like Appalachia. It looks gorgeous, colored leaves and beautiful trees and stuff. And of course, you know, what they're riding through is this blasted hellscape out of Dante, right? So you're you're kind of wondering where these people are are headed. Like we obviously know where Harker's headed, but where are the other people going? They, maybe they're going to Turkey or Istanbul or something? I don't know. I know um,
1: these poor folks living in this village that in the, the minute you know they yes. mentions Castle Dracula and vampires. Cheese guys, maybe could you move? I mean, obviously you've got your roots planted in this in this little village, but to live right. under in fear twenty four seven, I mean that's got to be a pretty heavy right. load.
0: I you know I always I have a thing about Universal all throughout this this era. So much of it comes from Eastern European folklore, and and I don't know if Universal as a whole, you know, and, and their filmmakers employed the, the Romani people, which are rudely called gypsy, but they're the, these characters tend to be like the soothsayers of universal films. If you, if you get to, you know, these folks that live down here in in this village, Maria Alspinskaya in the Wolfman, you always have these, these Romani characters that they know what's going on and, and you should listen to them. Right. And it's such (coughs) an, I don't, I don't know if eclectic's the right word, but it is, you can see some
1: of the, you know, the influences from the World War One folks coming back from, you know, Eastern Europe. I mean, again, at the time, the you know, United States in the 20s. I mean, I'm not sure how much they knew about European culture. So I think a lot right. of the ideas that they got filmed as they begin forming this universal universe is, you know, really, I mean, who do you, you speak to the folks that have, have been there and done that? Right. It definitely does. As you get into, you know, Frankenstein, it's it, kind of German. It's kind of Hungarian. And it's it kind of like this fever dream of all of these different cultures and, kind of mashed and times, together too.
0: You know, yeah. there's Universal exists in we, we should probably get more into the film, but to elucidate one more thing, my my love of Universal I think has something to do also with yes the the generalization of the topography like where you know where these things take place in Europe. It's a very vaguely European thing, and I think a lot of that is trying to shy away from. Germanic influence between the two world wars because there's a lot of anti-German sentiment in the in the United States. But it's also this this nebulous time period that takes place sometime between 1880 and 1930. There's people in horses and carriages. There's people in in cars when Dracula gets to to London, which which obviously updates the era in which it takes place. But if that's the case, then the dress is out of sync with the time. So uh, it's the the unspecificness of the era and the place makes universal films take place in their own kind of pocket universe absolutely and, and that's something i think that was their brand and i think that's something that no one else had that, that they could do completely you're right you're right completely timeless i mean even going you know fast
1: forward into a hammer film you can kind of get a sense of the timepiece. piece right. but no you're absolutely right with with universal it really truly is in its own universe and own in own time pocket and again that's just part of the the charm could take place Anytime, anywhere. So many multiple influences. It just makes it so much fun. So, yeah. yeah not to go off on a, a tangent. I'm sure we could talk about uh, talk about this yeah. piece all day. But yeah, getting right into to Dracula. So I mean that that opening scene in the in the crypt. Obviously, as we get past the village scene into the crypt. And we see Dracula for the first time. And um, I don't think I'd ever really realized how quickly, you know, we see the the villain in the film. I, I had to right. stop it and look at the timestamp. So within six minutes of the very first scene of the stagecoach coming down into the village, we see Dracula. And he's yes. standing there looking,
0: you know, mysterious and dangerous. Revealed um, as a vampire. Revealed to some degree getting out of his coffin. You know, the, That's right. the book draws out the the Stoker book draws out suspense of what is Dracula because it's through uh Harker's, you know, context where he doesn't understand what a vampire is and he doesn't understand, you know, and slowly, finally he he looks out the window and he sees Dracula crawling down the side of the building, you know, on his way to get prey. And he experiences the 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 three brides. The film does away with that and and pretty much says, no, no, he's a vampire here. He is. There's no, there's no mystery to it. They get, they get right to it. And that's an interesting choice. And part of it is I think they're dealing with... what I don't know. Dragon's under an hour and a half. It's not... But it's over an hour. It's not too long. It's, it's just... It, they, yeah, just over an hour. And I was yeah. going to say, I think, you know,
1: everything I'd ever read about this film is that they really did when i say they the filmmakers producers really want to make this a much fuller scale film much more like the book because but
0: with the you know obviously the great depression strapped them for what they could do yeah universal was was ailing at the point dracula and frankenstein came out dracula and frankenstein really saved the studio because it was coming out of the great depression and and it was not it was not a premiere studio like warner brothers was uh, Universal was a little bit of a backbencher and and these films saved it but at at you know there was a certain amount of cost to making this and I think they had to they didn't have a lot of time to to dolly around they had to they had to get to the meat and bones of it. That's right. And I mean, obviously going back to the sets we have,
1: you know, we can get into it, but you know, the Dracula's castle and then really yeah. the Serenitarium, but other than that, and that's really it. And you can kind of see, I'm sure there's the pressures of, you know, the film company trying to create a movie with such limitations. Um, I mean, the book, like you said, is it reads so broadly and so many things and obviously, Films of later years really dig into the whole mythos of Dracula and yes. um, you know what he can do. But you know, you look at this film, and it means really there's no fangs. You know, it's, you know, Dracula's not biting anybody. There's no blood. So uh-huh. you know, to be a creator stylistically, I'm sure that was you know very difficult given the limited budget.
0: And and as a filmmaker, just coming from my experience, what what you're left with without budget, what you're left with is mood, and you have to you create a mood with with lighting and with performance and with pacing. And suspense. And and that's what Dracula ends up doing. And they were, I, I think it's a classic because they were lucky enough to have the talents involved in it. Browning, Lugosi, uh, you know, Sloane and everybody. Freund. Absolutely. No, I mean, you meant it's a, it's a super point. You mentioned,
1: you know, the mood and everything. Let's just right right into, I mean, probably my favorite scene. Certainly in this film and you know maybe in all of Universal is Renfield entering Castle Dracula to talk about just the just camera work and just that spacious shot of when he you know first walks in kind of on the right side of the screen and you've got this huge vast, you know
0: the stairwell. and a, you know it's a it's a glass plate shot. it's a they built the lower third of it or maybe the lower just up to the lower half. And the upper half is actually a painting on a glass plate that is placed in front of the camera at a distance where it blends perfectly with with the set. So half of that is, it is a special effect. The best special effect, obviously, being
1: Lugosi in the scene, right? Oh, I mean, just absolutely fantastic. I mean, it really, really is. I mean, just in with so few words, and you think of all the iconic quotes, you know, I am, I'm not even going to pretend to do Dracula. a Dracula accent. If you can do one, Jim, go for I, it.
0: It's, the, the Dracula's accent is actually the only accent I can do. I, I am Dracula <laughs>
1: Well, I am Dracula. I mean, you know, I, I bid you welcome. You know, the children of the night. All you of these, just, I, the night. Yeah, I mean, just like these amazing lines. I mean, they take place within a minute or two of um, Renfield entering this, you know, the it, castle, Dracula. And just, I can't say enough. What a just amazing scene to this day. And you know, I'd watched this film, you know, a little while ago. On I just picked up the Blu-ray set of um, the Essential Collection of, of Universal, and it just absolutely
0: beautiful. Just, a- I, I mean, I think it's an iconic, if you picked oh. one scene from the film and if you wanted to pick a hundred scenes from a hundred films that are the American filmmaking experience, this has to be one of them. And you think about these classic monsters and and you have obviously Dracula and you have Frankenstein, Wolfman, Creature from the Black Lagoon, The Mummy. Dracula is the only one where it the character is not a makeup. It's not an effect. It's not, it's it's Lugosi's face. It's It's the face of this 49 year old Hungarian expatriate the only makeup is is apparently they they did give him a bit of a hairpiece so he has this kind of slightly more pronounced widow speak in this very stark beginning of of his dark hair and and they they paled him up obviously but and 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 so i mean he's kind of wearing a little bit of not to get too technical but lighting by by 31 was a little bit better but in the early days of film they had a lot of trouble controlling the glare of lighting and that's why in silent film you see actors are are they were there more dark circles around their their eyes their lips even male actors you know they wear this kind of stagey looking makeup and that was to help define the features of their face under the glare of very, very intense lights because they were having difficulty controlling exposure at that point.
1: Yeah, you can see it, especially with some of the young actors that put like kind of the cobweb makeup around the eyes, you know, mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. features and like you know, to your point where Legosi was, you know, not a you know, not a young man, you know, no. late forties, really didn't need all that much makeup. And I think, you know, proof of that is and I'll I'll post some photos on um on the um Instagram and Facebook um Bogopath's website webpage. But some of the stills of Lugosi playing Dracula on, on stage. On stage. And yeah, the makeup is
0: much more extreme. Absolutely.
1: They really almost dummied it down for, for this film. And I don't know if that was just a budgetary reason or
0: to your point, if it just wasn't coming across. I, I, th- I think it would come off as makeup on on camera. But on yeah. stage, obviously, you, you need someone who is, there's people in the front row, but there's obviously people 200 feet away in the back row and they need to be able to make out your expressions and, and the makeup aids that reading reading a character's intent from the distance so
1: and honestly i think that makes dracula even even more scary and more ominous that he does look without him speaking if you look at him it's like okay he's clearly a gentleman of european hungarian right. descent but it's not until he starts to to speak and just those slow the slow sentences and his usage of words that you realize this he is truly an almost an alien I mean, just in this yes. in the short times that he's engaging with Renfield, and you know, Renfield's very much even before he turns and becomes kind of the psychopathic, fly-eating Renfield, we know, you know, he's a little excitable and clearly nervous, you know, being yes. at Castle Dracula. And he'd already been warned by the townspeople, you know, stay away from Castle Dracula. Right. Honestly, the, man, the minute he walks. He's told him up is, front
0: that there's vampires there, but that's does right. he understand what a vampire is? Do we do we have that context where maybe you, know, maybe you not. have to imagine you have to imagine a world, and it's so hard now with our culture almost 190 years of, of this you have to imagine a time where you could hear like oh this guy's name is Dracula and 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 you go oh he's probably an okay guy give him the benefit of the doubt right well, what Surely, like, I mean the,
1: the Dracula family would have been a you know well-renowned name in Europe I mean, if, you, if yeah. you're if going back through the story but I mean these guys they were like the saviors of their of their country I mean they were royalty so to hear the name Dracula just somebody maybe a, you know, something like Renfield he's a count he, right Count Dracula. So, um, you know, what could be so bad about Count Dracula? But honest to God, I think the minute, and I was watching this you know, last night, you know, for all of his his nervousness, and obviously he's probably second guessing, I can't even imagine how badly Renfield needed this gig to enter right? this castle. And, you know, he, he I guess he probably needed the money really badly, obviously. Exactly, yeah. But, um, you this know, the minute... His- you know, I'm sure he had second thoughts, but then when you see Dracula going up through that staircase, passing through that huge spider web. And I mean, Renfield's not that far behind him. So clearly yeah. Renfield could see that for some reason he it pauses, right? Pause it. And, and went right, <laughs> right through that spider web, and then obviously Renfield takes out the, his cane and starts clearing it out. My gosh, I think at that point, wouldn't you head for the hills? Clearly yeah, I, something I, is wrong here.
0: I think the book and the movie both have a little bit of this idea of the, the of Western arrogance of of English and then and possibly American as well um, idea that that we're a more enlightened culture and that we understand things better and, and we're more uh, better equipped to handle uh, whatever situation the the idea of a character like that being a stranger in the strange land. Now we'll, we'll go back in this, but I think the the film and the book are actually sort of about being an alien in, a, in an environment. Uh, that is not yours. I think there's this English kind of thing of like, well, tut tut. You know, we'll we'll mm-hmm. just even even though even though Doi Fry has no English accent, obviously, and we can get more into that stuff in in later episodes of the show, uh, mm-hmm. the, the English and and, and American accents and in incongruous in places. So he 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 writes it off. Maybe it's but whatever the 1890s equivalent of jet lag is, you know, carriage lag or something. <laughs>
1: <laughs> carriage lag i like that actually he's got carriage leg. so hashtag so, yeah, so, so, they, so he
0: follows him up the stairs and then in, in the in the book and in the movie you get to this moment where uh in the movie renfield in the book obviously harker because the the movie alters the the story kind of fundamentally in a way that the the 1897 novel harker is the one who goes to transylvania to be the the real estate broker for dracula who's buying carfax abbey in london Renfield's already gone come back and and gone insane right so so his right. company is like send the new guy maybe he won't go crazy this time <laughs> he works for a terrible terrible company that it's, keeps sending these brokers to Eastern Europe where they where they go nuts um, I know
1: it, yeah um, just cocking ahead again not to get not to get too far ahead of us, but again, with the Hammer film, you know, it, it's Jonathan Hawker that goes yes. over and he's well aware. It's I'm sure we'll cover this at some point, but under the guise of a real estate agent lawyer, but right. know, knowing full well who Dracula is. So yeah, to your point, going back to, you know, this film here, um, you know, sending poor Renfield to do this job again yes. you know not to pick on poor Renfield but he must have needed this really badly because right at this point between the towns folks between somebody Dracula walking through cobwebs and then we can get up to the scene where he's sitting in you know finally gets into his his living space living area. Yes um, a more with comfortable a nice, space very more with comfortable the fire and
0: stuff.
1: He's got the fire, the food, the bed so he's much, much more comfortable. And he plays it so well, Dwight Fry. I mean, you can just feel, you know, anxiety
0: is quickly passing until he- He's, he's trying to rationalize what's happening. That's of, right. If, you know, he knows something's off, but he's trying to, and again, and, and maybe maybe this is the case in, Ren, in Renfield in the movie, we we don't know. But in the case of the book, Harker is doing this because he wants to marry, he's asking Mina to marry him and he's not a man of means and neither is Mina actually. Mina has a, a job actually. So this is his big chance. He's going to, he's going to make the sale, make his commission. And this is how he he gets his dowry or whatever he needs together to, to have a wedding and and marry the woman he loves. So that's, you know, there's the stakes are there. You understand Harker's willing to put himself through a lot because he's got an end goal in, in mind. So Renfield, yeah, maybe, maybe Renfield's got a sweetie somewhere that he's trying to get to to marry him again not to fast forward to too far here but you going back to the
1: Coppola film i think they did a a super yeah. job hawker and you know know, right. i mean how many times does mean to say oh my rich friend you know my rich friend lucy and you know i'm just a dowelless girl and you know etc cetera, etc cetera. so you know, um, you
0: know stoker bram stoker was not a, a well from a wealthy family Br- bram stoker had to work uh, all throughout the the time of his writing books. He wrote several, several books, by the way. I mean, not just Dracula, Lair of the White Worm among them, another horror book, but a lot of books that were not horror too. Uh, he published a lot during his career, but he had a day job. You know, he was, he was the manager, he was the assistant to uh, an actor called Sir Henry Irving and he managed, Ir- Irving had a theater. So, so Stoker had a day job. Stoker was a working man. He was not the wealthy class. He was not a land, you know, a landed, you know, titled kind of person. And the book and the film too, like, you know, has this interesting demarcation between between someone like Harker who has to work and someone like Lucy
1: who, who's born into more wealth. Absolutely. And yeah, the Western Rise. And of course, you know, future films really play on that. You know, she has yeah. all these, you know, multiple suitors and she's got the choice of any man that she wants. You know, certainly I think because of the budgets and the time restraints, this film can't go that deeply into in Lucy's character, which is which is fine. But yeah, I think that might have made a little bit you know, certainly Given, you know, say the Renfield slash hawker character in this film more mm-hmm. of an arc. You know, why yeah. is he doing well, the well, he's doing? Why no, is he accept the- why is he accepting these things? Why is he not questioning? things. Yes. And again, you can see just through through Fry's performance, clearly he's just filled with anxiety. He knows something isn't right, but to your point, trying to be the consummate professional because he needs to make this sale. Yes.
0: And watching it again the la- this week uh, and making notes for the, for this episode, something I'd, I'd never really keyed in on before, that, you know, obviously the film Shadow of the Vampire, uh, which is about the making of Nosferatu, which we could get into another time, which was obviously a, which a film made in the 20s, a silent film uh, made by the Germans, director F.W. Marnell, which did not have the rights to dra- Dracula the book and Dracula's widow suited and almost had the film destroyed from existence. Luckily, prints were saved and and we still have this different version of the film. In Shadow of the Vampire, which is about the making of Nosferatu, the, the vampire is hanging out with the crew and he talks about Dracula having to serve a meal to Renfield. And the idea of like, like after being undead for so many years how do you how do you select bread and how do you figure out wine and you know these things humans do that you haven't done in centuries and in dracula in the lugosi film here there's a moment where he's he, he turns and he's like i made you a bed and you realize dracula hasn't slept in a bed in hundreds of years that, he he's proud of the fact that he made a bed he hasn't had to do that ever again he's so alien especially that sleeps in, in a coffin name.
1: right he sleeps in a coffin. He probably doesn't interact or even speak to people. I mean, yes. clearly he has his brides and I'm sure he has his his minions around him. But really, yeah. when does he s- just to to sit and banter with, you know, Renfield about right. Carfax Abbey? And, you know, do you have the paperwork for Carfax and to sit and review, you know, legalities of this paperwork to make sure that it, you know everything is in order? When's the last time this Count Dracula did anything of that sort? Had to do paperwork, right? <laughs> do paperwork. Exactly. Doesn't he have someone for that? Like... You should have a secretary, but really, yeah, this undead thing, four, five, six hundred year old walking corpse, is looking at legal paperwork to to purchase property. It makes you realize. I mean, certainly for me in this in this bedroom scene, really, and I, I keep saying the same word, but just how alien this character is. I yes. mean, he really, truly is something from another planet. Who's. Playing the part of a human being,
0: and I think this is where Lugosi's performance really settles us in and makes us really believe he is his character. Uh, in, in in later interviews, David Manners kind of dogged on Lugosi a little bit. I think Manners only lasted in film until about the '30s, and he he went on and did other things, and it had a, ended up having a, a pretty long life and a happy life with his partner. But but he dogged Lugosi a little bit, saying Lugosi would would stand in front of the mirror. Uh, staring at himself and chanting like, I am Dracula, as a way of sort of joking about it. Saying. But I think if you compare, frankly, if you compare Lugosi's performance to, to Manners' kind of very basic dial-in, stagey performance, I, I think I think Lugosi was maybe a little bit method before method acting was a, was a thing. I think he, especially when it came to Dracula, I think he, and he was a very versatile actor. He did many other roles. He did funny roles. He He's a very accomplished, he did tons of work on the stage in, in Europe before he came to America. Uh, he played Jesus. He played a lot of roles. But when it came to Dracula Lugosi, I think he was all method. And I think he had to really inhabit that character. And I think what you're talking about, Scott, about the alienness, you're talking about an actor who came to America, did not speak English, somehow ended up on Broadway and, and in many roles had to memorize his lines phonetically. Right. he hired a, a tutor to memorize the lines just the sounds of the words without understanding exactly what they meant and I think because I you you know I've heard people from from Hungary maybe I don't know about his particular region of Hungary but no one really has the Lugosi accents and, and 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 it's it's both an accent and a cadence it was the the rhythms in which he spoke which are uncanny and and it gives him this like you say this alienness this this idea of like a, this undead creature who is unused to speaking to people unused to having a conversation, especially Clearly, being a host, not- all, all these things. He's, he's kind of bad at it. And he is, doing exactly. You beat me to it. He's, <laughs>
1: it is, it's this out of world. He's almost learning. He's almost like going, reverting back to a childlike state, learning how to have a conversation. And I mean, obviously, right. it, you know, the first lines with Renfield and even in, in, in the bedroom scene, it's these three, four, five words and, you know, sentences. And obviously as the movie goes on, it, it kind of gets a little, you know, I guess his, his interaction with the, you know, I'll call him the human beings gets a little bit better, but yes. yeah, I mean, you get a figure and this is just, you know, fan fiction prior to Renfield entering in That castle. When was the last time before that this
0: Count Dracula spoke to anybody?
1: Right. I mean, right. H- could it be hundreds of years?
0: Could it be. I. I. I can't remember if it's in the book or if it's in the. the... Copla film where he has he has these uh, magers, uh which are uh, a regional type of people from the yeah. area that that help him do things they're kind of his uh, groundskeepers a little bit and and I'll we'll get into it in a little bit when when uh, we get into the the England parts there's this underlying thing that maybe obviously Dracula is 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 after blood and that's what keeps him alive but is that really his goal or is his goal maybe to reinsert himself into the world a little bit feels like it's a little bit of both like I think he's still obviously he has the you
1: know this curse of being a vampire so he has these needs for blood but at the same time you can see he still has this ego just the way he dresses and kind of conducts himself that he truly is a count dracula who just happens to be a vampire who just happens to have a need for blood so i think it's a great point i think it's it's probably a little bit of both
0: i I think i think it mirrors lugosi's own story where dracula wants to go to a foreign country and and blend in a little bit where, where he can blend in and because everyone, obviously everyone in Transylvania knows who he is. He's not blending in. Anywhere. So he wants to go someplace anonymous where he can be anonymous and be walk the streets, which he, which he does as soon as he gets to England, which we're, we're coming up on pretty soon here. He can walk the streets in, in, in a top hat and tailcoat and not, people don't stare at him. They're like, Oh, that's just, know. Yeah.
1: But really right. how autobiographical this character is for Lagosian and the point I think you know, we're probably going to bring up later on was how hard Lugosi fought, I mean, not only yes. for this role, but to keep the movie in production. I mean, yes. originally, this this role was going to Lon Chaney, the original Hunchback of Notre Dame, right. Phantom right. of the Opera, Lon Chaney, who...
0: And who had done a film called London After Midnight, where he plays a, a very vampire-like
1: uh, right. character. So he really, he was earmarked for this role and yes. had passed away. So this was not a shoe in slam-dunk role for Lugosi. He really did yeah. have to fight for this.
0: No, and they looked at Paul Mooney and Ian mm-hmm. Keith and, and even John Carradine, apparently, uh, before for, even though Legosi had played the character on stage in on Broadway and was a huge success, you know U- Universal, yeah, they did. They, he was not their first choice. It's and again,
1: yeah, you can see it. You know why he took much less money than some of his co. I mean, we were talking yes. the other day. I mean, I think it was five hundred dollars a week versus manners. 2000 I think it was so he mm-hmm. I mean mm-hmm. incredibly you know disrespected yes. but this truly was a labor of, of love and even Todd Browning at some points walked away from the film I think he kind of gave up some of the reins to some of his supporting to, 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 to Carl K- Freund yeah right, IMDb Freun.
0: I I never I think this is maybe a little recent I looked it up on, on IMDb and Carl Freund is credited as co-directing the film and there's a, there's a lot of speculation that yeah, Browning maybe was having a little difficulty shifting into to doing a sound film and Freund had to kind of had to step in a little bit. And so it's no surprise that they end up giving Freund the mummy the next year. Uh, right. Yeah. So, so definitely it seems like the directorial duties were, were shared to some degree.
1: Yeah. So as you mentioned, let's get into to England, but we can't, I don't want to leave Dracula's castle until that, that scene of, you know, obviously Renfield drinking the wine, feeling a little <laughs> bit drugged, yep. being visited by the three wives, Dracula just appearing and waving away his wives as Renfield lie unconscious on the ground. He's mine. And the scene cuts as Lugosi is approaching Renfield, assumingly Renfield's neck put him yes. under the, not yeah. not the vampire, but certainly some kind of a, I don't know, an illness. Or, I mean, v- Renfield isn't a isn't a vampire. He
0: has something there, right? Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's like he is turned into this halfway state. There are, I remember reading, and this is kind of passed out of the popular cultural myth of of the vampire there there were i remember reading things saying that the vampire had to bite you three times to for you to become a vampire and then maybe the third time opens up the the blood in his in, in his own body and gives to you and there's this there's this transference and there's this you know transubstantiation thing that, that goes on that turns you in a vampire so until then you are only partially there which is maybe it's kind of where mina is to for part of the film she's lingering in this in between where she she's vampiric but she's not a full-on vampire and i think that's it takes on a weird aspect of in Renfield where he, instead of... You get the idea he's working up to humans. He's like a serial killer who starts off killing animals and then, you know, perks the people. Right. That, that he he ends up with this obsession with, with insects and, and, and rats and mice. So, so he's working up the food chain or up the evolutionary chain, rather, to humans. But it's an interesting... Yes, and yes, they cut away before he bites... Well, they cut away before he bites everybody, before he bites uh, Renfield, before he bites Lucy, and before he bites Mina. The censors would not... The, the understanding was the censors would not allow the scene of of Lugosi with his his mouth clamped on anybody's throat, much less another man in 1931. Right where we see the Dracula does not differentiate between men and women. He he's equal opportunity when it comes to drinking blood. And that's another funny thing about this movie is is that it's a movie about a guy who sleeps and gets out of coffins and in, 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 at sundown bites people and is killed by driving a stake through his heart. And we don't see any of those things. They all happen off screen because they, at the time, they weren't able to show that on screen. It's like, you know, I always joke about. It's like the Highlander TV show where it's all a show about you know people who who sword fight and cut each other's heads off, and then you never see anyone get their head cut off because on television you can't show the critical factor of the, the character. And for all that, but we, but we we think we've seen it right with sound effects and with all that stuff. We think we've seen it, but we 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 never see Lugosi get out of a coffin. You know, the camera literally pans away and then pans back, and there he's standing there. That possibly has something to do with the awkwardness of. Getting out of a coffin in dinner suit? Just the issues they
1: had with the sensors that you know mm-hmm. some of the like. Renfield screaming. There were a couple of scenes that had to be cut, and yes. you know, the, just the groaning of when Legosi finally gets staked, or you know, mm-hmm. really, any, you know, anybody getting
0: staked. The groans were cut. Um, yeah, the, the British censors were especially intense about stuff like that. I think so. So I, I you really is when this film comes out in 1931, pe- different people in different countries, even different states. Uh, you, you, when a, when a movie went to Wichita Falls or something in the Midwest back in those days, the theater owner had the liberty to edit out sequences. They would cut out little bits before they. If they decided that their audience in their town, you know, that wasn't appropriate for them to see. So you understand why why going back and finding the pristine original versions of so many of these films is very difficult. It really is true. So yeah, why
1: don't we get going? So I mean, that was really just, again, obviously my favorite scene, our favorite scenes, mm-hmm. I most of favorite scenes is once you leave Transylvania, film hits a different beat. But for you know, sure. obviously we're on the, the Vestar and we're, you know, sailing to England and just as awful storm that yeah. you know, clearly, according to the newspaper article, everyone's found dead except the fly eating. Renfield, who at this point is turned and uh, amazing camera scene of, you know, when they finally open up the deck of the, or the door of the, of the deck and Renfield at the bottom of the stairs, clasping each side of the stairs and just that maniacal laugh right again if you've got to say like just iconic scenes in universal not only dracula that's got to be it i mean just that one
0: shot looking down oh that, my gosh that, that gangplank or whatever at him oh. yeah um whatever you call it on a boat um yeah and you know that that's where uh browning's cameo is too he's one of the voices saying like like whole crew washed up yeah oh whole crew dead horrible or something one one of those voices is is browning i've never been able to decide if it's the more cockney one or the other one. Oh no kidding that's yeah. i did not know that yeah really interesting captain Lash to the wheel horrible i i do believe i do believe that browning in in a little bit of a cameo yeah yeah and then so we go from and there's there's some geographic confusion here because it the the sanitarium sanatorium i can't remember which which one it is because a sanitarium is for crazy people and a sanatorium is for people convalescing and i think it's a sanitarium uh run by dr seward is in whitby and whitby is on the east coast of england kind of north a little bit more towards scotland than than it is towards France and London is obviously south central England. So you're talking about a hundred miles away, a little bit more than a hundred miles away from each other. And the I, I don't know how the book manages the the film kind of seems to flop back and forth where we're not sure where where Carfax Abbey is versus the sanatorium and stuff. But but in any case he we don't see what happens to to Renfield after after Dracula bites him and somehow he, he well, he, you know, he, he comes over on the ship and then is arrested or obviously and brought to this, this thing. So now, now we're suddenly in Dr. Seward's sanatorium. Sanitarium? sanitarium. <laughs> and he wait, one of those. <laughs> I'll call it the sanitarium. I think you're right. Yeah, I think yeah, it's a sanitarium. sanitarium. Yeah. And, uh, and Renfield is now in, not an inmate, a, a, a patient. And apparently it, in the sanitarium, and it was not uncommon in this era for the, the doctor or whoever, the administration of, of a a lunatic asylum to actually live there with his family on the property, which now seems like a crazy, sorry, thing to do, right? Yeah, no pun intended. Yeah, but Stuart lives there with, with his, (laughs) with his daughter, who in this case is, is Mina. There's a lot of, from the book, obviously, Lucy and Mina flip-flop a little bit from the book, but But yeah, um, Mina is is his daughter and Lucy is her friend who lives in the city and and is obviously the the first step of Dracula's obsession. Listeners, we've reached our mid-show break. So please feel free to hit pause and grab yourself a drink. You may rejoin us whenever you're ready. We'll be waiting. So the, the the next we see uh, Dracula again, he's walking the streets of England in a in a top hat, an evening coat, and a cape and a cane, and he's perfectly blending in. I mean even, even to the point where later on that evening the 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 constable sees him, you know, the the, the keystone cop looking guy is like, Oh folks, close it in, sir. and he's like oh. You know, you know, he just he blends. He looks like this aristocratic gentleman, maybe with a little bit of exoticism, uh, obviously, from from his his ethnicity. And again, I think this is something he wants to do. And he proves it by the first thing he does. Having never met Harker like he has in the book, I'm not sure what his objective is here in England, but he does seem to instantly gravitate towards and maybe it's the connection of, of Renfield getting in the asylum so he seeks out dr seward i don't know but the first thing he does is go to an opera after afternoon i'm sorry he bites the flower girl lady honestly she has he has like an appetizer gets right? a sustenance that's right <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> little something to keep him going <laughs> for the night and the poor uh, very very pretty uh actress uh whose whose name i i can't remember the flowers for your buttonhole he and he bites her and then he goes to the opera he goes to see the opera that's playing is, is Wagner's uh, *Der Meistersinger von Nuremberg. And it's about a group of singers in Nuremberg who decide to create all these rules for how you should sing or something. I, I don't know a lot of, um, but it, it is
1: a Wagner opera. I'll say, fun fact, I'll throw in Jim, same um, opera house as Phantom of the Opera.
0: Oh, is it? Is it, is was, they use the same location? That makes same sense. location. Of course, of course
1: it is. Yeah, I was looking at it. I'm like, I hadn't seen Phantom in some time, but you know, going yeah. back, looking at it again, and then I did you know, just a little bit of Googling. And sure enough, the same set from... Um, from, from Phantom of the Opera, from, from the the long Chaney
0: Phantom of the Lon Opera. Chaney, right? yeah. So so he goes there, and and obviously one thing I noted this last time watching it, being a little older now, Dracula's powers obviously include being able to be seated in the middle of a performance, which I've never been able to do. Once you know, once the live performance starts, you have to stay in the lobby until like they can sneak you in. Dracula obviously can hypnotize his way in, even though the first act is still full on going, and he goes into the box and he meets Dr. Seward. He meets who who plays Stewart again? Oh, Doctor Stewart is oh Herbert Bunsen, who's who's really affable, but definitely as a character, he you know he seems very befuddled by what's happening. He's he's a guy who's all about science, and in the book that that's the case too. And Ben Helsing is his buddy from way back, comes in and brings in this more you know broader sense of science and mythology and, and 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 everything with the vampires. But he also meets Mina Mina Seward in this, Lucy and Jonathan Harker, who played by uh, David Manners, who as far as I can tell in this movie, I'm not sure he has a job or any real purpose. He he just, I mean, he's Mina's boyfriend. I mean, I think that's his kind of, you know, he wears this kind of writing type things. Good gig if you can get it, man. <laughs> yeah, right? I mean, I mean, now, so in this, obviously Mina is the daughter of a guy who owns a sanitarium, so she obviously might have something to do with, she's got some some assets and some some funds. But but it goes to, and I'll talk about this more as we get into the other films. You know, you know, Dracula 31 is coming out of America's coming out of the depression. And there seems to be in a lot of studios, but especially Universal really does this, this depiction of an upper class of people who don't worry about money, who seem to lead these lives of leisure, like 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 him, or like uh say John Talbot in the Wolfman, who, who's a landowner. He doesn't really have a job. He, he, he owns an estate and he fiddles around with telescopes, obviously. I think there's a little bit of a, within the horror genre that we're talking about, there's a little bit of a fantasy element where I think people enjoyed watching characters who were more well-to-do and who had spare time and who could stand around smoking in a parlor, who had a parlor, because so many people were, were out of work. So many people were struggling. I, I don't know if at the time the audience wanted to see people who were poor and trying to make their way in life. I think there was this this fantasy idea of, of watching uh, people who who lived on a higher thing. So anyway, that, that just that's just my overview of, of this second half of the film, which is sort of a parlor drama. The folks during the depression, if you're spending, you know, when I
1: say hard-earned money, probably very hard-earned money. Yes. You want to go to the theater to see folks living in squalor or living in, you know, the depressing and challenging right. times. No, you want to literally escape. And that's kind of a movie for all of us or the reasons yeah, to see a yeah. movie or to you know go to a concert or you're trying to escape reality even you know for an hour or two
0: and exactly I places think it's a, you've never been things you'll never do right that's uh, right that's uh, right also they, they'd see plenty of squalor and, and, and real stuff in the newsreel before the film because back then you would go and you'd sit in the theater and there would be a cartoon and a newsreel and an informational thing and then the movie
1: all later on I know with World War II and you know do your part and you know donate yeah. steel and you know right
0: buy, right right buy war bonds and stuff buy yeah, war bonds. On, which when we get into uh, The Wolfman and, and Frankenstein versus The Wolfman and all those films are happening concurrently with the war. So it's it's an interesting ju- juxtaposition. We'll get into that, obviously, talking about those movies in a sure. few weeks. But yeah, Just Manners' character cracks me up.
1: Yeah, but it's true. I mean, you had mentioned the point. I mean, aside from obviously Dracula purchasing Carfax Abbey and the fact that their estates I forget, I think Lucy or Mina, you know, I forget the exact verbiage, but that, you know, adjoin, I think adjoining adjoining lands or adjoining lots. So yes. obviously they're neighbors, you know, that one backyard right. turns into the other backyard. So besides that, what is, you know, do your point, what is Dracula's purpose for seeking out steward and his obviously his daughter and and Manning yeah. at this opera he's got the choice of you know obviously he you know, found a victim in the the poor little flower girl and got a sustenance yeah. so it, it was almost like he was seeking out Lucia mina prior to again at least with the film prior to him ever meeting them or you know obviously he's meeting Seward for the first time meeting yes. this cast of characters for the first time so really I mean again not to get down this rabbit hole and maybe overthink it too much because obviously these characters have to meet and we have to have a reason for them to meet but you know know going back what was dracula's reason for going to this opera yeah as, I mean, a, obviously-
0: as, a, as, a, as a writer you want your character to have a, mo- a motivation and, sure. and dracula's has to be more than you know as, as a filmmaker who is who's made a zombie film i can tell you that that zombies as characters are not interesting they're just they just want to eat you. There's no, there's no thought process, there's no intent, there's no goal, there's no uh, depth to the character. So for, and to some degree like if you want to talk about a regular vampire, like some creature you'd run into in the middle of a movie of some, like a, not a Resident Evil, but like an Underworld movie or something, right? But Dracula's more than that. Dracula's, uh, he, he was royalty and he was a soldier and then he you know, if we want to talk talk about the, the the historical character, he's been alive for hundreds and hundreds of years. So he he has to have a goal beyond just not withering and dying he has to have a, a long-term plan and and again I think it goes into this thing where he he's trying to you know he's an em- he's an immigrant just like Lugosi was and he's trying to insert himself into this posh culture of his neighbors and maybe finding victims within that social circle is like you you date within your social circle or something I don't know truly uh, no maybe like it's a, a happy accident.
1: Like a fine wine. I mean, maybe it's the way he looks at it. Like a aristocrat. I mean, I mean, obviously they're not aristocratic, but like you said, high, high class victims. You know, one could sure it argue that-,
0: that, that Mina and Lucy have eaten better food, drinking better Absolutely. wine. So perhaps their blood. Is a little more, you know, we're talking about the difference between Chuck and Filet or something.
1: Well, absolutely. I mean, again, for his ego. (laughs) And again, (laughs) it kind of, you know, really, you know, his ego to think that he got the daughter of very well-to-do Dr. Seward. And it kind of, you know, throws in the fact that obviously we're just talking about this flower girl who we don't know her, you know, her personal life too well. Assuming and she's not well-to-do. She's selling flowers for buttonholes on a, you know, a street corner. Poor thing's Um, blood probably just tastes like gin, right? Cheap gin. (laughs) So my guess is Dracula is really hard up. He really needed some sustenance. He just he needed that well, blood to.
0: Well, it's you like you want to eat? You want to eat healthy, but on a road trip, sometimes you just got to stop a Jack in the Box or something. It was like McDonald's, right? <laughs> no, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> flower it's girl was like flower.
1: <laughs> flower girl was McDonald's. Yes. Um, um, and then you finally find Von yeah. Stewart and um, the whole introduction, and you know Lucy had just some terrific kind of you know the creepy lines. You kind of saw her. I don't want to say the darker side, but certainly, you know, meaner is but you know her and mannering just so clean. I mean, yes. Yeah. I don't know if clean is the right word, but you know, they're just you know, just they're, the, they're the straight shrift.
0: edge kind of yeah. So straight
1: edge, like the fact that Lucy's talking about death and you know, reciting these these words of, you know, as if the dead were there and mean is like right, you know, it was like almost like filth getting on her pristine skin.
0: Yes, exactly. And and, and it's almost like like Dracula, you know, notices her and is like, Hey, here's here's right. my type of girl, right? <laughs> Right. And
1: and goes right out and goes right after her. Really. I think his first victim after flower girl is is Lucy. So you could see he was absolutely, you know, when Lucy starts going, you know, telling the lines of, of that poem, I mean, Mm -hmm. Dracula turns to her immediately and he's, he's immediately engaged as the lights go down.
0: He's just staring at her hungrily. Yeah. I mean, why
1: not say, why not make her the wife. I mean, he seemed to, you know, kind of, and again, the, the time time frame of this movie is just, it's it's kind of unknown, but he seems to spend a little bit more time. I'll say, I mean, Lucy's death seemed to come a lot more abruptly like, to me yes. of the two of them. And again, maybe this goes back to his ego, but why choose, you know, maybe Mina as his bride versus mm-hmm. Lucy?
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a strange. I'm not sure what the what the the thing is. And, and my my feeling is that there. I would like to someday read the the actual. You know, the the I believe it's John Balderston wrote the the screenplay for this. And Baldston also wrote the Mummy. Uh, he was a news reporter. He was actually there when uh, King Tut's uh, crypt was opened, which gave him the idea for the Mummy. Right. Uh, uh, great great screenwriter. And I'd like to really someday see if there is a full screenplay to this to see if maybe things were even not cut out just maybe not shot or truncated in the process with with because you know the studio heads are are right there they're filming on the lot and they're probably just looking at browning like you got it you know as a director i understand like the, the producers looking at you like you got to make the day man you got to get this shot you gotta, right you know, it it feels that money, way right
1: it feels that way
0: doesn't it yeah yeah so it feels like things are truncated and and and, and maybe the worst loss of of, of the, in the film of the the character wise is is lucy's character who's a big part in the book gets truncated. We, we, you know, we see her later on wandering through the, the woods uh, and people see her in her ghostly pallor. Yeah. And the know, woman in white. Right. She's, she's beautiful, but we never see her die. We never see, you know, in, in, in many other film iterations, you see the first thing that uh, Van Helsing, Seward, and in in the other versions of the uh, Quincy Howard and Harker mm-hmm. um, Quincy, Quincy Jones, sorry, Quincy Jones, they, their first, the first thing they team up, these, these God's madmen guys go and they, they, Kill Lucy, and they put a stake through her heart, and and put her to rest. In the film, we never see that happen. So. Conceivably, in in the Dracula thirty one universe, Lucy's still out there wandering around biting kids. She, they call her the Boofer Lady, which I think is an accent to thing for the beautiful lady. Um, so she's still biting yeah, little little kids. Yeah, I, I know they refer to the, you know the woman in white,
1: and the kids have seen the woman in white again and again. You know, it, it's so true. I mean, going back to say the Coppola film, such a huge middle chunk of that movie is yeah. Lucy dying, right, right? And you know,
0: just being bit over and over and over, and you can just see the effects of. And it's powerful um, because it sets. Up what they can see is gonna to happen to Mina. They they've lost Lucy exactly. and but now they're seeing like Mina's gonna go this way if we don't do something. Exactly. So it sets up the stakes of what they're trying to do. Hundred um, percent. Yep. Uh and and then but in this yeah, yeah. So 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 Lucy gets bit and they figure it out. And then the next it, Dracula seems to very quickly move on to, to Mina. Right. So Mina, at you know, at some point is bit. And then we start work. We meet Van Helsing,
1: Professor Van oh, right. Helsing, played by um, Sloan. Van
0: Sloan. Eddie Van Sloan.
1: And it's, um, you know, and I had to go, I did a little bit of research. I mean, I'd always watching him in Dracula and even Frankenstein. Yes. He, he looks so... So much older, like I'd always just imagined him. He's like this, you know, you know, senior level professor, instructor, you know, whatever. Like mid sixties, mid to late sixties, right. maybe on the verge of retiring. This as is gonna be as... one of those things where he's like our age, right? He's our age, yeah, he's, <laughs> I, knew it. I think he's like forty eight years old. Like forty eight years old. He's our I age. I mean, he's like Lugosi's age but you, people, you, know, you look aged at him very differently back then. <laughs> with the glasses. And obviously like yeah. you what know, the, the white crew cut, you yeah, know, he's yeah, kind yeah. of a smaller guy, you know, hunched
0: over, Um, you know, he looks yes. like he's lived a long life. And you feel um, like he's done battles before. You feel right. like he's, you know, he's scarred. And I think they did do that with Anthony Hopkins in the movie. He's got in, in the couple of movies, he's got scars from that. Right. He's been doing this a while. There's a reason he knows about this stuff. He's good at this. He's killed a few vampires. He's fought some fights. That's
1: right. He's been through um, the wars. He's got the scars yeah. to show it.
0: And I mean, Edward Van Sloan just brings uh I, a level of you know he's he's like the he's like the donald pleasance in halloween like he gives he gives the film a little bit of credibility just with his presence and his his er, eruditeness you know truly um, oh, and especially you can see why that... they kept reusing him i mean they use him in this he's in he's in this movie frankenstein and the mummy he's in all the big three it's it's hilarious like he's and he's basically the same character. <laughs> And I mean, I don't want to blame,
1: you know, the actor Herbert Bunsen for this, but the Dr. Seward character, as you mentioned earlier, he's very milquetoast. There's no bravado. Yeah. I can't yeah. imagine him, you know, running this super successful Sarah Tarramian, being this, you know, leader of of men and women. Right, um, right. I mean, immediately, you know, Van Helsing comes on the scene and he just takes right over. And at, at one point, he's like, you know, I have to be, I have to be master here to help you. And it's, Seward I mean, immediately. I mean, yeah.
0: Seward's useless. Frankly, like Harker's useless. Right. I don't know what, I mean, you definitely feel like (laughs) in this context, Harker is just a wealthy, privileged young guy who they explain—they it seems like they explain what's going on to him a few times, and he's still—it's like there's a big bat flying around. What's that? Right, like he right. doesn't get it.
1: Yeah, I just want to take me away, and that's all I care about. And you know, he's kind of right. like a, a, a fussy
0: child, not yeah, gonna listen yeah. to. Kind of a doofus. So, 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 Van <laughs> Helsing is really stuck, really with not not the best army. Uh, to, to fight Dracula with. That's Elm. right. Uh, but, he, but he still manages to go back to this thing where Mina is starting to exhibit telltale signs of, of vampirism and Dr. Van Helsing, who, who very quickly realizes that there is this thing amongst them that is because there's two things he has to figure out there, he has to decide that they, yes this is in fact a, a vampire a Nosferatu which is the name of the film from 1922 apparently it's an Eastern European word for vampire and yet a lot of research has been done and we we, we can't quite figure out where that word comes from if that's a real word we're not sure it's authentic we're not sure if it's a maybe it's a misspelling or a, a mistranslation of, a, of another word for some kind of undead, undead creature mostly it exists in the pop culture world it's not not like, like there are words in the those areas for terms in those areas for these creatures like order dog and 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 things like that for demon and stuff but but nosferatu right. seems to be sort of a made-up word uh that we we now associate with the undead so that's an interesting little bit but yeah he, he first figures out that yes there are there, there's a vampire here and his next thing is this is where the movie comes into this kind of a murder mystery kind of thing right where he's the one who has to figure out who it is so, you know, of course, Dracula
1: comes in and, you know, checks in on Mina and et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. Then of course, as Manners is, is getting a cigarette and, you know, in the cigarette box has a mirror and right. Van Helsing can see immediately that, you know, Mina and Seward should be talking to Dracula. His eyes are telling him that she should be speaking to Dracula, but of course, no reflection in the mirror. Yes. So it immediately double checks himself and he sees him in a, and as you know, Mina walks out of the room, Dracula follows her, sees him again, just to make sure, yep, Mina's, yes. you know, where Dracula should be standing, that Dracula isn't there, right? So, and then as,
0: as, as, a, as a proper scientist, he conducts a test. He he, he tests his experiment, right? He, a couple of times. So the litmus yeah. test, perfect. All right, this is my this is my
1: guy. Yeah. So immediately and he holds it up to him and when and when Dracula smacks it away, he knows. Like that, but that's uh, proof it, of his. But my my I guess the issue I had was so why would he why would he, if I'm Van Helsing he you know obviously he knows he's going to be in this epic battle with the undead why give up his I mean he now he has this knowledge he knows who the vampire is and Dracula doesn't know Van Helsing knows right so that's an why, interesting thing he why give up that advantage. Why give up that advantage? He immediately oh. walks up, opens up the cigarette box, and within a second, Dracula knows Van Helsing's in. He's yeah, yeah. He knows. He knows. He, he's he's been made. He's um, been made. So now is he's on he the line to get
0: Seward and and Harker on his side to make them understand. But it doesn't seem to work. They still seem to deny the evidence of their son. You know, as as he says, he's like the strength the vampire lives in the fact that we don't believe in him.
1: So that's again, an interesting to,
0: observation. I never thought of that. I
1: don't want to over. And honestly, Jim, I don't think I really had either until I sat down with a little bit of an analytical eye and put myself in Van Helsing's shoes. And right. obviously, if you're fighting the undead, they have, yeah. you know, almost all the advantage over you. I mean, so the knowledge, if you have the knowledge of who they are and they're not aware yeah. of it I mean, immediately, as soon as Dracula knows, Van Helsing knows that he's a vampire. Yeah. He's al- he's almost on the run and yeah. you know he comes back and then he's attacking Van Helsing, he, you who know, he returns back to the house and he's trying to put Van Helsing under a spell. Yeah. Come it, here. Come here. Uh-huh. And, you know, they have a kind of a battle of the wills. Now, if Van Helsing hadn't given up that knowledge. Maybe Dracula, maybe just disappeared for the night or, you know, maybe they you could know. have at least protected Mina.
0: So, I mean, you know, I looking at it again, knowing I him. I wonder if he thinks knowing what he's up to, Dracula might give up and, and move on to a better maybe life. make a mistake or. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure. But you'd think I, having
1: that knowledge, knowing where he resides, you know, where he sleeps at night in Carfax yes. Abbey, he would, you know, give it the night, protect me to that night. And maybe the following morning, man, you're there with I'd go for him, know, yeah, anybody yeah. you could find and, you know, start turning over, you know, find that earth box.
0: So much of the second half of the film, to me, now looking at it from my perspective now, is really, I think it really is about this test of wills between these two immigrants, you know, Dracula from Eastern Europe and Van Helsing. From where's he from? He's Dutch. You can tell from his accent. He's from a, a foreign land too. So it's these two men who are out of out of their own place met in in you know a test of wills in this other this third country. Um, and it's, it's an interesting. Van Helsing is old by human standards, right? I mean. Even even if Edward Van Sloan was not that old, I think the character of Van Helsing is supposed to be in his senior years, and then and then Dracula obviously is is, is even older. But there's that moment of this that's and this might be actually my favorite moment in the film is is this test of wills where he tries to make Van Helsing come to him. He's going to take care of this obstacle. You know, Dracula's going to take care of this obstacle to his what he wants, and Van Helsing fights him off, and he's like, for one who has lived only a single lifetime, yours. It's wrong man. He, he respects him. I mean, he, he's really the only one of, of all these, you know, flesh bags that the Dracula really does respect. Uh, and yeah, he respects you're him a as antagonist. He respects him as a as a scholar. You know, and he, yeah, he refers to him. It's you're a wise man,
1: Van Helsing, yeah. you know, before he leaves. So again, he looks at these people like food. So to mm-hmm. give give them, you know, somebody any kind of credit, imag- like you said, imagine the respect Dracula feels towards Van Helsing as, as yeah. his adversary. Of course, you know, now he's a legitimate threat to, to Dracula's existence. But to give food, you know, to call him a wise man for someone who had mm-hmm. only lived well, about a single lifetime. Yeah. It, yeah. it just goes to show that they truly are
0: on, let's say, almost equal grounds and Dracula knows it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He knows he's a risk. And it's just, you know, it's in drama. It's every, every great character has a great antagonist. Dracula has Van Helsing. John McClane has what's his name in, in, um, darn. <laughs> know, me. Um, we'll, have to, we'll do die hard someday. Yeah, exa- exactly. Um, <laughs> Hans, um, Hans, you know, uh, uh, Batman has the Joker, uh, you know, the strength of a of a character is defined by their antagonist and the strength of that antagonist, obviously, Dr. Loomis and, and Michael Myers. And the the purpose of that character in, in so many of these things is to talk up how dangerous the, the villain is. Don Plesson spends half of Halloween talking about like, no, you don't understand. Michael Myers is not human. He, he won't be right. stopped. He's, he's constantly trying to make Everyone understand the danger they're in when they they can't comprehend it, and that's what Van Helsing is doing. This entire second half of the film, he's like, "No, no, no! You, you, you don't. Uh, none of you understand. This is real, and we are all in serious, serious trouble
1: here." Yeah, and besides Seward, I mean, Seward seems to buy in very, very quickly. You know, never doubts Van Helsing yeah. for, uh, even a second. I mean, you'd think. Yeah. I mean, obviously, with all the respect Seward, I'm sure, has for Van Helsing. Again, I'm just in my mind's eye. I'm trying to go back to the film. Did he ever even remotely doubt or question any of Van Helsing's beliefs that? Right. Okay. Dracula was the vampire. And I get, it, and
0: maybe you, you could tell me. I'm, I'm not. Did it ever really question? He, he he grasps onto it faster than 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 Harker does. For Very sure. quickly, yeah. But yeah. but he, again, he, it's like you were saying. He he is. You don't understand how this man is probably maybe responsible for an entire asylum full of patients. He his entire interaction with patients seems to be like now nah, now nah, Renfield right now now no, right. no. behave yourself like it i'm not sure what and and again this is obviously the late 19th century early 20th century so as far as being treated uh you know patients in asylums back then were, were sort of were more locked away than they were treated uh it was just it was just a place to be go to go away from society so you didn't bother people the the idea of helping the mentally ill is a more 20 later you know mid to later 20th century concept so so at this point they're just trying to Lock these guys up and 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 keep them uh, away from society. And yet Renfield, what's really neat, I mean, so, so obviously uh, Dwight Fry had done the the stage play with Dracula, so these two had done these characters a lot of times before uh, through multiple multiple performances. And this is where you know Renfield, uh, Dwight Fry's character, Dw- or Dwight Fry plays heavily in the first half, obviously, but the second half, I think he really gets to do some stuff he's um you know so Bram stoker again like I said earlier was uh, uh he managed theater for Sir Henry Irving uh, who was a very popular stage actor the late uh, 19th century uh in in London and Sir Henry Irving did did a version of Faust where he played he played the devil and I don't know who played Faust, and they think that that Stoker took a lot of inspiration for Dracula from his version of Faust, which he played in formal wear. In this very, with a widow's peak, is very elegant. He played the Sir Henry Irving played the devil in this very erudite way. And there's a lot of speculation uh, by David Skull and other scholars that the idea of Dracula as this as this formally dressed arch aristocrat came out of that, and thereby our modern conception of of what Dracula is like. So obviously, if you have the devil, which in this case would be Dracula you have to have faust you have to have the the man the human person who made a bargain with the devil and that is renfield who is struggle who struggles with the the morality of what he's done he's he's brought dracula to these people he's brought this monster within their walls and there's this idea that he probably has some sort of feelings for mina himself and he feels guilt because of that. He's he's torn between his his goal of serving his master and being being turned probably into a full vampire with all the, the tendon powers and everything, and his sympathy for the humans that he's put in danger. And I think Dwight Fry plays this so wonderfully this myth. he's almost bipolar, right? He's like almost like schizophrenic.
1: I mean this is some of the best acting probably in all of Universal. Just yeah. the the it's not as far as, you know, if you're looking for the action and you know just being the sanitarium certainly has its, you know, some of its drawbacks and critics and whatnot, but you cannot say enough about Fry's just, his performance. Yeah. Like you said, it's bipolar, and you can see him the struggle between the devil, the darkness, and the light. Is you know He's grasping on humanity, right. and you know by trying to help Mina and warn them over and over again. You know, and it's they just a look at him. Tragic
0: character, it's very tragic. Yeah, and, and all yet, they want to do
1: is lock him away. Right. First, right. You know, and, rather, I mean, Van Helsing kind of engages them and said, you know, you you know why they? Uh, I'm sorry, I don't know the exact words, but you know, the only really engaging. Renfield as a human being or, you know, a tool is Van Helsing. Everyone else wants to, you know, hey, Martin, you know, grab him and and put him back in the corner and shut the cage and let's forget he's even here. Van Helsing can see the worth.
0: Renfield, he's the conduit between the humans and Dracula. Yes. He he could be their inside man. I mean, he, absolutely. He know yep. he knows what Dracula's after, and if they can just get to him, and and Van Helsing really works at him, and and inevitably, you know, you know, the tragedy of Renfield is that he he ultimately fails to to redeem himself. He never does. He he actually goes to warn Dracula at the end and and try and you know that that the men are coming and inadvertently leads them to him and not to spoiler alert, uh, <laughs> Dracula. <laughs> takes them out in in those, in those amazing, wonderful, uh, stairs. But again, if it, ironically, like another one of those lasting images from this film is that when the nurse faints and you, you cut to, and you see Renfield crawling on all fours. Oh, my gosh.
1: Her. Just incredible. I mean, just those animalistic eyes and, you know, any humanity that Renfield had maybe 10, 20 seconds ago, yeah, you know, was gone at that it point, you know. Yeah. And you have to wonder, is he going to, not to get too gruesome, but, you know, obviously he's not full vampiric. He doesn't have the fangs. Or actually, Lugosi doesn't have fangs either. but right.
0: Does he is he going to go and bite her neck? Is he, is he going to bite her? Is he going to do something else to her? There, there's this, there's a latent threat that is very disturbing. And, right, um, right. And Dwight Fry was he's so amazingly talented in this, and it's just a shame that you know he he pops up in all these other Universal films. He he's obviously he's obviously the the Hunchback Fritz in in uh, Frankenstein, and after that he he starts playing you know a lot of villagers. And is he he's either in Sun or
1: Ghost? He's I, I know he I mean I, he might be in both. I know I'm trying he to think Frankenstein right. versus the Wolfman he's literally just he's like the third villager he's like oh he he's when he said
0: he'd blow up the dam i mean just that's uh, right it's it's that when he shows up in again yeah i mean so and he he had a few other roles in universal and i think he he did some other work but he you know he just never um was always going to be a character actor he was always doomed to to be stereotyped as that and I, i and i feel like for what such a gifted guy as he was um it's a shame that he never really was had a chance to to lead a film or to do to do uh, he could have done um, any any number of of other roles or something like that it would have been interesting I could have seen him as the the artist in in House of Horrors or or anything else right, like that. so right yeah I, a, anyway
1: I mean obviously we've had you know almost hundred years to look back on but you have to wonder did they know you know they Universal anybody did they know what they had with Dwight yeah. Fry I mean yeah truly, they had a, like a real was... they had
0: a real weapon there and and, and absolutely Fortunately, I mean, he got he got assigned to just the supporting bits. I mean, I mean, but, so um,
1: so special, especially again, you know, up against people like not to badmouth him too bad. like David Manners, but like just these yeah. milk toast, and you know, a lot of it was the part. But you see, yes. like you know, Manners even in the Mummy, and he seems to kind of play the same you know, same huh. type of character. And I don't think he was ever you know a huge horror fan, so no. I'm sure you know it was a paycheck for him. He wasn't exactly you know passionate about the project. And again, um, he
0: only he only acted for about three or four more years after this, and then he he went and he uh, he had a ranch of some kind, I, I think, uh, and you know he he was he was a gay man living in the thirties. So, so obviously he had to keep his private life secret, it, but, but those roles he would get, I mean, I, I, you do kind of feel sympathy for between Dracula, the black cat and the mummy, not in those orders, obviously Dracula, mummy, black cat. He's always playing, <laughs> he's always playing this character that either Carl or for Lugosi are, are, constantly after his girl. And, and, and you think about, it, he's this young, very handsome man, you know, athletic and very well-spoken and these older boogeymen are constantly macking on his actions <laughs> And he can't, he can't do much about it. He's always clueless about what to do. I mean, I, I would, I would argue the black cat, he's, he's his most proactive, but except for that, he's this very neutered protagonist. Yeah. He's just a very he's stuck mean. in these roles, which you could see why he would be frustrated. Cause they're not, they are not, they're kind of thankless parts to some degree. They where are. He just they- has to stand around and smoke and, and be clueless. <laughs> Hawk it back to just his personality. He, just, he does. He comes across extremely
1: meek, but you know, but yeah. very handsome. You know, somebody that you know. I'm sure he'd be great to play around of golf with, or you know, oh yeah, kind of have right. a smoke with. But you're absolutely right. Like he's not the he's
0: not up to the task. Not up to the task. He's a <laughs> mummy after your girl. He's right. The... <laughs> he's just oh, right. like,
1: oh, okay. I'm sure they will be you know. I'll, I'll find somebody else. Go ahead, have fun. You know. Yeah.
0: He's not really he's putting up the, the second. F- yeah. You know the one. The one actor in this we haven't really talked too much about is Helen Chandler. Sure, so far. and and again, watching this again this week, the thing I was really noticing is is that her performance of, of all of theirs is it feels very contemporary now. It feels very naturalistic and and mannered, it, it, it or unmannered rather. It's not. It doesn't have that '30s flair, that Cary Granty kind of more more theatrical thing. Her. Delivery and her her physicality is very contemporary. You feel like you could drop Helen Chandler into a modern film and she would actually not seem that much out of place. It's an interesting thing, and and watching Blu-ray, you do realize the, how beautiful she was. She really her eyes. Oh, she's stunning,
1: she stunning. I mean, just that you have this the huge eyes, especially you know towards the end of the film when she's, she's speaking st- with st- staring at the neck, right. Just those big <laughs> eyes, and, and the and the camera pans in on her, and she yeah. was just absolutely beautiful, you know. And obviously, yeah. we won't get too deep into it, but you know, kind of a tragic, um, yes. tragic life in a way herself, anyway, listen, yeah, yeah, know, with
0: alcoholism and everything. Just unfortunate. Yeah. yeah, and it's 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 just a shame. And but you know, she this is only her, as far as I know, this is her only Universal horror film. Whereas some of these other characters kept you know coming back and repeating, and repeating. Lionel Atwill and and <laughs> Sir Cedric Hardwick and 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 what this seems to be, you know, she did this and moved on. Yeah. I've seen her just in little
1: bits, just only because I, I appreciate her work in Dracula, but just, you know, went on YouTube and just found, you know, little clips from other films. And i think one of her last films ever 30, uh, I'm going to put myself in a box here, but one of her last films, but still, I mean, extremely beautiful. I think by this time, you know, she's really heavily involved with like the alcoholism and really going through some personal issues, but now I'm glad you brought her up and very important. She'd be a topic point in this podcast. I, I right. love
0: the I love the still image, uh, the the promo image they do of of she's sitting at a table and she's holding open the the great big novel version of Dracula, oh, Dracula and they're yeah. all leaning in and looking at it and like looking at a passage and stuff. It's it, it's so very staged and it's something that a, a studio would have you know done only in that era. But well, it's just, a great pick. It's really that, funny. That.
1: Yeah. Oh, the other one I love too. It's her. So it's she's facing the camera. Her neck is, is kind of cooked to the side and it's oh, yeah. directly going into bite her. I mean, yeah. What oh, right, f-
0: right, right. yeah oh my
1: gosh. What a beautiful, what a beautiful shot. Yeah.
0: Good neck. Um, <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. Um, uh, say we're in Carfax Abbey at this point once Renfield seemingly attacks the nurse we're kind of in the you know the closing beats of the film so Carfax I, Abbey. I've noti-
0: I noticed last night watching it that there's, a, there's a bit of a jump into this very short third act they you know yeah, Renfield does the thing and then we we cut to this clock shot there's a bit of black and we cut to this clock and then already Van Helsing and Harker are exploring Carfax Abbey there's been no dis- we don't see a discussion of like hey we should probably go to Carfax Abbey and kill Dracula right yeah okay sure. Um, no it's like because they're the, already doing it and they see the wolf coming or, in and taking taking uh Mina. Right. I mean Harker sees the wolf running across the yard,
1: and at that point they kind of pick up their gear and head over to Carfax. And that's obviously when the nurse is attacked. But yeah, the scene opens up with the Renfield climbing up the stairs that you had mentioned to find you know Dracula mm-hmm. and and Mina. And at that point, Dracula was, you know, well aware of you know Renfield's Betrayal and of course kills right. him. Looks like he, he choked him or just you know ruined his neck somehow. And then Something, just had that yeah, fantastic down
0: some stairs. Yeah,
1: yeah, just that thumping. I mean, if you go back yeah. and crank up the audio, just that thumping of the body coming down the stairs. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, and ugh. that you know that set uh, talking about that first scene where where Renfield <laughs> shows up in Dracula's castle, and you have that amazing set of stairs. that Dracula comes down. They end up their final meeting is is similar to their first meeting where they're on this giant set of stairs again, uh interacting. This one I don't. As far as I can tell, I don't know if there's any special fact. I think this is a very tall, great big set that they built, this giant circular staircase with a pillar in the middle. It's unusual and beautiful. It's it's understated. You know, there's not a lot of detail. It's just this ruined, you know, staircase down into a 85 feet down into a crypt. That is just astonishing that this, this action takes place on. Frankenstein, the original 1931, kind of has that similar, I mean,
1: not... It's kind of blocked by kind of the tower and the -hmm. the name of the room there. But when you first walk into the watchtower, obviously that big staircase that leads up to the laboratory. And I was doing a little bit of research last night just to see if they reused some of the same sets um, from Dracula for Frankenstein. And I couldn't find anything. I'm it's, led to believe probably not, but they certainly look just that
0: kind of that long hooking, you know, stairwell. I mean, it's very likely done on the same sound stage at, at the very at the very least in Universal. Sure. Uh, I can't tell you which which sound stages. I've been on the Universal a lot, but you know, most of these sound stages, there have been a series of fires. Universal uh, Studios is kind of tucked up against a, a mountain hill, which is ironically, the hill you see the the carriage come down in Transylvania in the beginning of the film, right? It comes down to the little gypsy town. That is the hill right up. You're you're kind of on the other side from the Hollywood sign right here in LA. Oh, no kidding. Um, Interesting. Yeah, uh, But a lot of these buildings were up. A lot of these sound stages were, were, are nestled right there and close to the hills, close to woods and very prone to forest fires. And a lot of these places, these, these studios of, or these uh, sound stages have since burned the the Eastern European Square, where Wolfman mostly takes place, you know, that central action, I know burned in the 50s, I think. Also, these films, not to get a little technical, were shot on a nitrate based celluloid film stock, uh, which, as we all saw in uh, Inglorious Bastards, is not only flammable, but combustible. So, you also have had, over time, I don't know if in Universal, but in many other places, uh, you've had occasions where under certain conditions, these this film is actually like a fire starter. So we have lost a lot of these sets that, uh, the, and sound stages that these uh, these fil- these earlier films were, were shot on. But I wouldn't be surprised if, given the approximation of the productions, Dr- Dracula coming out, success, right into Frankenstein, at least some of these elements were reused. So I wouldn't be surprised if if those stairs were just reclad and redone and, and, and set up for... Um, for Frankenstein.
1: I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, obviously a lot of work and love went into that set. I mean, it's so beautiful. So I
0: can't imagine it wasn't reused yeah. at yeah, some point. Yeah, just I mean, the expense so. alone. Yeah. Yeah. You <laughs> want to save some money and stuff. But yeah, it's just a glorious thing. But we do we do sort of race into the third act here. And then before we know it, it's it it turns into a little bit of a chase scene, right? They're they're racing against time, they're racing to save Mina. The sun is coming up. So Dracula's racing against the sun. To get back into his thing, and uh, and the next thing we know, we're we're in this again, this this final set, this beautiful crypt with the fantastic, vaults, yeah, you know, just thing.
1: that opening scene, you know, that we saw Dracula yeah. at, um, yeah. you know, back in the crypt, and it all happens extremely quickly. You know, you, the killing happens off screen. You hear kind of a grunting and a groaning, yeah. and Mina you know, <laughs> and
0: Harker in each other's arms, and in uh, yeah. credits roll. Y- you sort of wonder. Van Helsing, cha- you know, he's chasing Dracula into his lair and he knows he has to put a stake in his heart, but he doesn't bring anything to do it. He's got to sort of like, hey, find find something heavy. <laughs> I got to peel off a piece of wood here from the from from the top of Dracula's coffin. There's precious seconds there where you're like, man, that's, you could have used a little bit more planning <laughs> for that. Yeah, aside, but, from um,
1: crucif- aside from a crucifix, yeah, he really didn't go with, you know, any tools of the trade. So maybe he work. just assumed being in the old you know, Carfax it probably wouldn't be that difficult to find a piece I'll, of wood. Or, you I'll, know, find yeah, I'll find something. I'll find something,
0: right um and you know it's it's interesting i i i have this love for for films like this and and it happens a lot in in the older universal films is that, that you know you do have this idea of there's a there's there's producers there and there's cost involved and and people making making the doing the spreadsheets you have this understanding where you can see a producer just going because these films end so abruptly sometimes just to, you know in a normal narrative you have you have the the drama it it, it it goes up to the climax, and then you have this resolution, or or what you could call a denouement, like where there's a few minutes after the climactic event to let everyone relax and come off the thing before the end of the story. Uh, Frankenstein does this really well, where you know the, the 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 windmill burns, and then you cut back to Castle Frankenstein, and it's oh they do the toast with the the you know the maids like oh a son to the house of Frankenstein right right, right. um this movie it's like you can see it's like. <laughs> You can see a producer like, look, Dracula's dead, films money. Just have him walk up the (laughs) stairs, right? Like... (laughs) <laughs> um, it does end really abruptly. You feel like there could have been some sort of thing of them going away and stuff. They do in The Black Cat, they 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 do uh, manners and um, the actress in that are kind of like rolling away in, in a car or something after Lugosi and, and Karloff have their final thing. Um, so some of the movies do it, some don't. Um, yeah, I know
1: Bride of Fra- I mean, not to go down this rabbit hole because uh, we're pushing the Frank- time Frank- here. But like, you know, Bride of Frankenstein. I mean, what a like, great ending. And we only see The Bride for a few minutes. And then, you know, Colin and his wife just kind of walk off and, you know, walk, walk, climbing up over a mountain,
0: you know, yeah. headed back to wherever.
1: Goodbye. Um, and, you know, next thing you know, he has a few sons that we never heard about and yeah, creating monsters. Exactly. And, but, but, oh, but, is...
0: uh, I just, I, you know, the ending, I did notice this time, now at some point, we'll be talking about Dracula's daughter, the, the film, uh, the follow up film for, from Dracula. Sloan, Van Sloan's character, Van Helsing, says you two you two go on I'll stay here for a bit and Dracula's daughter begins with Van Helsing being arrested for the murder of Count Dracula right so it, yep. I've never watched the two films sort of end to end and I'm anxious to do that to see how well that because obviously Frankenstein and Bride Frankenstein doesn't match up quite well because Frankenstein ends with with the wedding still happening and and Colin Clive in bed okay and then Frank, Bride Frankenstein starts it it, it redoes that little ending where they're carrying him down and they think he's dead now and all that stuff. So um, those two don't dovetail quite as well. I'm anxious to see how well Dracula and, and, and Dracula's daughter I guess we've come to the end of the film. It's a no. universal picture.
1: Yeah, I tell you, our podcast is going to be probably twice as long as the film, and um, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a lot to dig into. There is, and yeah, you have to you have to do justice for um, the fine films, like especially a, a classic like Dracula, where so exactly. many people have discussed it, and there's so many you know takes and and whatnot. So right, um, right, right.
0: But I I think it was good to start this this series with this film, which again I I, I will always say is was really the prototype. I mean, James Wells Frankenstein possibly perfected on this formula and, and maybe did it slightly more deftly. But without Dracula, you don't have Frankenstein. And without Dracula and Frankenstein, you don't have the Wolfman and Man-Made Monster and, and She-Wolf of London and, and all the other dozens and dozens of films that, that we all love and that we'll all be talking about. I know, and it, in in the event of maybe hopefully you know pro- establishing his legacy uh, even even more so than it already is maybe no, that's that's great yeah. all right do you, I think we're almost done here
1: do you want to um give him a little uh, teaser maybe with podcast number two
0: I will uh, so we wanted to obviously start the show with with uh, with something very recognizable you know the, a paragon of of the style but part of the point of doing the show is. To talk about some of the lesser-known Universal films that maybe folks have seen a long time ago, maybe folks have never seen. So we're going to go from we're going to go back and forth, and from this we're going to go into a, a slightly lesser-known, probably a much lesser-known Universal film. We're going to skip ten years into the future to 1941, and we're going to be talking about the Lon Chaney Jr. film, Man Made Monster, also starring Lionel Atwill.
1: Yeah, I mean a lot of recognizable faces. Certainly, you know. Mr. Ratwell and uh, Cheney yeah. Jr. So I think it's a it's a really great idea. Um, it's a fun movie yeah. too. It's almost a little sci-fi. It's a, it's a great movie. Yeah, and I think you know something that's you know as Jim and I were talking about putting this podcast together, something really really important for us, and you know hopefully it, it extends back to the audience. Was to show kind of our our love for these films. And it's not it's not covering, you know, only the Dracula's and the Frankensteins. I think not to say anybody could do that, but really we want to dig deep sometimes. Yes. And you know, get in deep into you know, I think you know, a lot of our focus is gonna be on universal, certainly some non-universal. So, you know, as Jim said, I think it was really important for us to hit peak and pillar with a with a movie like Dracula and then maybe get into as Jim said, just kind of a lesser known, but you know, still a, a really nice film. And I think we're going to have a, a ton of fun. I'm going to have a ton of fun
0: researching that one. Yeah. and it's, I, a, it's also a great excuse for us to watch these films again. When we absolutely, maybe, maybe, maybe Scott and I even haven't watched them in a while and stuff. And so it's a, the research uh, part of this is also quite enjoyable. I hate to say it, I'm almost looking forward to researching that more than Dracula, just
1: because Dracula has been such a part of my life for 40 plus years. Yes, I don't know. I don't know a ton about Man Made Mons. I've seen the film a number of times, but. I'm really, really looking forward to doing some some homework on that and uh, discussing it with you. It's gonna be fun. I can't wait. Absolutely. All right then. Well, this was a lot of fun. I don't know if we'll, every podcast will go this long, but you know, if it does, we certainly it's okay. You know, we <laughs> want to do a, <laughs> we want to give our time and our and our our respects and our thoughts to these films, and I think we're off to a fabulous start here for sure. Thanks very much, Scott. I appreciate Thank it. Thank you, Jim. Yeah, no,
0: my pleasure, and we'll talk soon. All right, we'll see you guys next time on the Borgo Pass Horror Podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode. But the fun does not stop here. You can follow and interact with the show's hosts and listeners online on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The Borgo Pass Horror Podcast is a presentation of Shadow Camera Film and Entertainment. This episode was edited by Livio Marino. The music was composed by Sean Poole. Opening and closing narration are by me, Cat Herons. Show titles and graphics created by Jim Towns. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Borgo Pass Horror Podcast.